AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, right now we're joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Great resource for the latest in Minnesota news and politics over at minnesotareformer.com. As we are going to be talking about some news from the state legislature and also how the legislature might be trying to rein in some of the uh, very exploding costs we've been seeing when it comes to disability and PTSD of first responders. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about Dina Winter's article titled Law Firm and Some Police Are Lobbying Hard Against a Bill to Rein in Disability Costs. And this has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of police departments, of course, have had a number of police officers claim PTSD, including the city of Minneapolis, as well as other first responders. And that, of course, has hurt the uh, overall fund that is used to pay out these types of payments. So what exactly is the current state of the police and, re- and fire retirement fund in Minnesota, and what would this bill at the Minnesota State Legislature do and affect this? So there's a, an interesting series of events uh, that begins in 2019 when the legislature approves uh, a measure uh, that gives a, um, an automatic presumption um, if a police or uh, firefighter uh, is diagnosed with PTSD, there's an automatic presumption that it's work-related. Um, so that's one thing uh, to keep in mind. And then you get the George Floyd killing. And, I mean, we could probably debate about why this is the case, but a lot of police officers, wind, especially in Minneapolis, but uh, all over, wind up uh, with PTSD uh, diagnoses um, and leave the job. They, they uh, take a duty disability retirement um, or they uh, take a workers' comp settlement. And uh, as a result, it's uh, really shrunk the size of the police departments, especially in Minneapolis, and created all kinds of uh, problems there. Um, it's also uh, done a bit of a number on the police uh, and fire retirement uh, funds. Um, and, uh, and so lawmakers at the behest of cities and counties, especially who are uh, having to deal with this as well as the, um, the, the, it's known as PIRA, the, uh, the uh, public employee retirement association, they say, look, we need some help here, um, because we're just getting killed by these disability payments. Um, and one, one aspect of it is that, uh, if they, uh, have a disability, the, this, the, the local government has to pay their health insurance through the age of 65. So you can imagine uh, somebody at, at the age of 32 um, winds up with a disability uh, and they leave the force and then the, uh, the local government has to pay that um, for 30 years. So at the legislature, what they're trying to do is... Uh, the, the stated intention is to get uh, folks with PTSD treatment um, and so that they can then return to work. Uh, the, the idea here is that this is, a, this is a treatable condition and we ought to be able to, to get uh, these folks back to work. And, and so they've created some, uh, kind of some new conditions um, in, in the hopes that rather than just sending folks off with a duty disability retirement, we can, we can get them treated and, and back to work. Um, and then they've also um, made some other adjustments, um, and uh, it gets a little in the weeds complicated here, but 
um, essentially they're they're trying to cut the the disability um, and duty disability retirement costs, um, and so that's what the bill would do. Um, but they're hitting some, some some pretty tough resistance. Yeah, I would certainly imagine so. So, uh, how have some of the first responders and the law firm representing these uh, these different first responders responded to the bill, and how have they been lobbying against it? So, there's a, a law firm uh, based in um, Eden Prairie, uh, led by a guy named Donald Muser, who has said uh, that his firm has represented uh, hundreds of Minneapolis cops and firefighters who filed workers' comp claims and retired early after Floyd's murder. They say they represent, I think, something like 80% or, excuse me, three-fourths of Minnesota first responders uh, who apply for disability pensions. And they use their social media and um, their network to to whip up some opposition and um, um, and have done quite a bit of organizing around this uh, and got uh, first responders to come out to a hearing um, on Monday. Apparently, they had a, a, a meeting uh, called very uh, short notice on Sunday and got a lot of people to come out. Uh, and then they came to the hearing on Monday and they, they shared emotional testimony. And um, I mean, there's, I, I don't mean to minimize the, the, the personal um, pain and suffering that a lot of these folks have gone through on the job, whether it's through physical injuries um, and then also the PTSD. Um, I think that there's, uh, there's, a, there's some skepticism and I, I think there's, uh, I think rightfully so about the the wave of PTSD claims in the wake of George Floyd's uh, police murder, um, and so um, I think it's a it's it's an interesting conflict at the at the legislature, and it's got really big long term fiscal ramifications because uh, at this current pace, uh, something has to happen. Either current officers and other first responders are going to have to pay more into the fund. Um, or the state is going to have to kick in, and, and um, you know nobody wants either of those. And final question for you on this is: uh, How have lawmakers been uh, responding to concerns on this? Have they been getting cold feet or having to make adjustments to this bill? I, I'm curious how they've been responding because, as you said, the uh, the resistance has been uh, pretty fierce uh, thus far from some of the first responders. Yeah, I I, I think a, a lot of lawmakers, like a lot of us, have have connections to law enforcement. Uh, my late grandfather was a, was a police officer in Ohio. And I mean, everybody can kind of, you know, everybody knows uh, somebody who's a, a firefighter or a police officer, first responder. And so I think everybody's pretty sympathetic, but, um, but they, I think there was also some, um, some consternation last night in, in the way that our reporter Dina Winter described it. Um, the, the the chair of the committee of the pensions uh, committee thought that uh, there was some um, some of the attacks were were unfair um, on a bill that they've been working on for years now um, and uh, and in fact the vice chair of the committee actually threatened to to clear the room when uh, the folks got a little unruly um, so we'll we'll have to see and then of course you have the shifting politics of of the police union. Uh, generally, Democrats stick by unions and vice versa, but that's really no longer true of the police union anymore. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think those politics uh, certainly are going to enter the uh, the equation here. 
You can read more about Dina's piece over at minnesotareformer.com. One other article I wanted to talk to you about, actually this is a column from Eric Harris Bernstein, who is, uh, the title of the column is, Ignore the Big Numbers, Surpluses Can Quickly Become Budget Deficits, as he argues that despite the fact that we have a $17 billion surplus, he says permanent tax cuts could lead to whiplash deficits and cuts in public programs in the future, which sounds an awfully lot like the Palenti years. So he really seems to hit home this point about one-time money versus, well, continuing funds. So tell us a little bit about the difference between one-time money and ongoing revenue and why this is uh, big for budgeting, because uh, as he argues, this has a pretty massive impact in terms of how these surpluses are, are calculated. Right. So we, we've talked about this before, but the, we, we, we hear this number, $17.5 billion, and it sounds like a huge number. That's, that's the surplus. But the reality is uh, the structural surplus, that's money that uh, we foresee being there at the end of this next two-year budget cycle, is only $5 billion. Um, the other 12 and a half, uh, you can really only use it for one-time expenses. You can't create new programs because then you wouldn't have any money to fund those programs going forward. So that's the first point is that the, 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 the surplus is much smaller than that $17.5 billion that we keep hearing about. Um, and then the other thing is if you give a significant permanent ongoing tax cut, um, especially with, uh, as they've been uh, debating at the legislature, this cut on Social Security benefits, that uh, could could easily be you could turn us into a structural deficit. Uh, all it would take would be you know a significant downturn, um, and and then meanwhile, especially in that social security piece, because with the aging population, uh, that number just gets bigger and bigger quicker uh, very quickly. The the number that you lose uh, through that tax cut, and and then uh, now you're in a structural deficit. And you have to turn around and raise taxes, which is never politically fun, um, or cut programs. Um, and, and so whatever progress you may have made in an area, uh, like you can imagine, uh, the, they, they're now going to give free lunch to all students, breakfast and lunch. Well, now we have to claw that back. I mean, just imagine the, the, the political and the policy implications of that. Um, and so what Eric is arguing, and he's become a, a really a fantastic uh, commentator on fiscal issues for us. What he's saying is, look, you should be careful here um, because this this uh, surplus can go away very quickly. And you mentioned the Pelini years. Uh, you know, and I think that's exactly what happened when the state had big surpluses uh, in the late from the late '90s economic boom, and then it all just evaporated, and then the whole state went through like a, a lost decade. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we somewhat correct how these are calculated in terms of, I, I thought before we didn't include inflation when they were talking about the expense part of the budget. Did that get fixed or how did that work? I thought there was somewhat of a fix to, to make these numbers at least a little more accurate than they, they might appear to the naked eye. Right. So in the past, what had happened, this started in the Palenti years, was, was the when the state uh, economic forecasters put together their um their forecast for the for the future, they did not include inflation when they were factoring uh, the cost of government going forward. They did make that change. Um, so so that's a healthy thing that um, we're, we're being more transparent about the cost of government. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, surplus can easily turn to um, a deficit um, with a, a good downturn 
um, uh, uh, with a recession um, and and a big tax cut. So um, what Eric is saying is just be careful. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're going to give tax relief, just do it one time. Use that one-time money that you have. You have a huge pot of money there. That's $12.5 billion, and give out rebates. Um, but going forward, you know, you don't necessarily want to make make these tax cuts permanent. You can read his column over minnesotareformer.com from Eric Harris-Bernstein. We've had him on the show before, too, and as he said, he kind of provides a sobering look at those uh, at those state budgets, since oftentimes they can be a little deceiving. A final question for you, Patrick. What else are you uh, looking for at the state legislature this week? Uh, what should we be looking at? So they're, they're really coming down to it with the, the state budget. Um, I think apparently they put out budget targets for each of these uh, kind of big, broad areas. Um, so I'm looking uh, to look at those today. Um, and then, uh, you know, they have uh, this week and next, and then they go on spring break, and then we're, we're kind of into the sprint um, at that point, um, and it, especially with the, the two-year uh, budgets that they're going to have to craft, and, and we'll uh, see what they're going to do. Um, and then, of course, I think also, uh, I think cannabis is also, um, getting a, a major bit of a rework, and we'll have to see where that goes. I, I expect, I still expect that to pass this year, but I think it's probably going to come down at the end. I think the hope that they would pass that in this lull before the budget is probably evaporated um, as they tweak that bill to make a bunch of different uh, interest groups happy or less less mad, I guess I should say. Um, and, and get the wrangle of Senate votes they need in that closely contested 34-33 Senate. Well, you can read more about that over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. Make sure you go there for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Patrick Kulikan is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. As always, Patrick, thanks for coming on the show this week. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil. 